The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P. Knight, Elder P, Mini Garage Mahal. We're missing our Wetsy, but uh, he's still doing all the work for us behind the scenes. He is, yeah. He may have thought that he escaped some work by setting us up here, but really, I think all it's, he added is a bit of a drive. It's probably actually more work. So yeah. we've actually cr- increased his workload, but that's okay. We are the Rebels, the we podcast the Rebels. for the cultural engagement. There right? you go. Look at that. Yep. We're starting to learn. We're starting to learn. We're also part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. So I don't know where you're listening to this. If you're listening to us on a podcast catcher, that's awesome. One of the things I would encourage you, because we are going to amalgamate these feeds at some point, is if you don't listen to uh, the Ezra podcast for cultural reformation, then look up Ezra Institute in whatever podcast catcher you use and subscribe there as well. The best place, quite honestly, to listen to us is download the Pub TV app, Fight, Laugh, Feast app, and listen to us there. And there's lots of good stuff on the network and uh, always looking to expand. So um, that's who we are. Are you on that podcast every week now? Is that a thing? The Ezra podcast? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, with Ryan's departure, which was for those of you who listen, we announced that last week. Mike Teeson and I are going to kind of share hosting duties. I mean, the Ezra podcast is just, it's there to make Joe Boot famous. Everybody should know Joe Boot. Everybody should listen to Joe Boot. And so Mike and I are just going to share duties on getting Joe's brain out to the people. And we'll share duties there, but uh, you can listen there and, and you'll get Joe's insights on cultural reformation and Christian philosophy and all that kind of stuff. And then you and I will take Joe Boot and bring him to the people, as you like to say. <laughs> so, so we're Boot for Dummies. Boot for dummies. Yeah, that's a great way of, of putting it. Yeah. yeah, which is fine. It's uh, everybody needs a little bit of Joe Boot in their life. Somewhere he's just like, no, no, Pooty, you're just a dummy. But he'd say it. But he'd say it in a way that would make accent that you're like, yeah, sounds smart. I can't hit you. I agree with you. Okay, so today what we want to talk about is last week. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, this is kind of, I guess, a bit of a part two. I mean, you don't necessarily need to listen to last week's episode, but a couple of weeks ago. On the podcast for Cultural Reformation, uh, Joe and Mike Teeson and myself, we were talking about just family ministry and what it looks like in terms of the centrality of family in the rescue plan of God, in terms of redemptive history. So in you know our true fashion, we took some of that conversation, some of uh, Joe's insights into biblical theology, and brought it to the people. So we talked a little bit last week about what does that look like, boots on the ground. Well, one of the things we end up talking a lot longer than we thought we would about was just family-integrated ministry, family-integrated worship. What does it look like to have children in the services, Sunday mornings, a church that does not segregate based on age in terms of age-appropriate ministries, but really tries to minister to the whole family? 
I think we said this last time, but if we didn't, I would just encourage you. Family Integrated Church is a great book by Vadi Bakum. Family Shepherds by Vadi Bakum are some great things that would kind of get you started thinking through the theological necessity for that. Uh, but we really just kind of talked functionally about family integrated worship. And, and one of the things that we talked about, because I would say one of the main objections, other than just the distractions, which we talked about a lot last week, one of the main objections for why people don't like family integrated worship is essentially the idea that, well, my kids don't understand the 45-minute sermon that's not geared to them because they're only six years old. They need to go somewhere to get age-appropriate teaching. And what we said was, we're not assuming that the six-year-old is getting something out of the sermon, nor are we watering down the sermon to gear it towards six-year-olds. What we're doing is honoring God's design by feeding the fathers and feeding the parents and equipping them. So then the job, and what we try to make clear here at Crossroads, is your job as a father as the shepherd, as the pastor of your family, as to be sitting, getting fed on Sunday mornings, and taking that information and all that God has done in your heart through the preaching and teaching of his word, and then distilling that to your family. So that presupposes something, and I would say that that one of the things that presupposes is that there are men there to hear. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's we, we kind of chuckle about that, but realistically, in our culture, there's a lot of absentee fathers, there's a lot of broken homes. That's a plague in our society, and it, and it leads to all kinds of cultural unrest. But then on top of that, you add to that the, the reality that in North American church membership, women outweigh men seven to three. So like out of every 10 church members in North America, seven of those church members are women to three men. And so obviously men are absent in just North American church. So we kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Maybe, well, let's start with maybe why that is. And then this episode is called How to Win the Hearts of the Men, and we want to talk a little bit about essentially how to do ministry that goes after the hearts of men, because as we said last week, as goes the father, so goes the family, as goes the family, so goes the church, as goes the church, so goes the culture. Yeah, yeah. It's all connected, obviously. Agreed. And one of the reasons, it's kind of almost like a a cyclical girl um, cycle that happens too, right? Where what happens is we have a lot of women in the church, and so... A lot of the times the women are the driving force doing a lot of the ministry. They're the ones running programs, doing stuff, doing VBSs and all that stuff. It's generally not the men. They're at work or whatnot. And so what happens is like a lot of a pastor's support base ends up being the wives, not the husbands. Hmm. And so therefore to not lose that support base, which is sometimes tied to they're the people who contribute to my salary. They're the people who make my job easy, whatever. The pastor then becomes catering somewhat to the women in the church, which the, where the cycle comes in actually drives the men even further away from the church. And so like the cycle spins because the pastor becomes effeminate, or even if he doesn't himself, he's catering to the women in the church, right? Which consciously or subconsciously. Yeah, exactly. It could be consciously or subconsciously, which is driving more of the men away, which means he ends up having to cater to more and minister to more and more women in the church. Okay. So question, because I think you're absolutely right. What does catering to the women in your church look like? Oh, that's a, <laughs> I would say it looks like a lot of different things. I think it was Michael Foster that talked about the white knight culture in Christianity and in men. Yep. That idea is simply like it's it's men who try to anticipate and fix the felt needs of, of women in their church, thinking that they have to run to defend all of these women and all of these things in different scenarios. So in the, in the church that plays out where they are basically tailoring the way they preach, the way they teach application to the women, to the detriment to the men, 
They're focusing on like women-led ministries. They're not taking leadership. They're kind of allowing them to run the church, even if they're the figurehead of the church. I would say in a lot of cases, I'm not saying this is universal by any means. That's the main way I would say this happens. Um, And this happens a lot in complementarian churches, like churches that would say, oh, we don't allow women to hold office, but then those men go home and they don't make any decision without checking with their wives first that that decision is okay, right? Yeah. You will pick this stuff up when you hear phrases in a church like, the man might be the head, but I'm the neck and things yeah, like that. That's right, yeah. Happy, happy wife, happy life. Yep. And I would even say one that I think is just as much a sinister phrase, but like one that we actually is a lot more socially acceptable is when people are like, oh, my better half. Yeah. And it's like, there's lots to unpack there. Like one, if you say you're better have, it means you're actually insulting your wife. Like to say she wasn't smart enough to realize her value to pick the right spouse. Yep. It also is saying that you are subordinate to her. And it's like, yeah. that's not a biblical pattern at all. How would you say this plays out in the church? I think that generally speaking, and I think this is true. And if this sort of hurts or lands harshly, then I think that there might be some influence of what we're talking about in, in your own life. Women are generally more emotional than men. They are far more prone to being guided by their feelings. I think this is actually one of the reasons that God restricts leadership within the home and in various aspects of the church and society to men. Let me talk about the difference between two different words, okay? So the difference between the word sympathy versus the word empathy sort of embodies this. So sympathy means to kind of see somebody in their plight, right, and move with compassion towards them, right? So I see somebody who's stuck in poverty, and so I I moved with compassion for them, and that compels me to act and to be sympathetic to their need. Empathy, however, empathy actually means to identify with the person who is suffering, So oftentimes you'll hear this in culture where it's just like, it's not enough to sympathize. You have to empathize, which means you can't just look at the person and say, I'm compassionate to their suffering. They want you to suffer alongside, right? And you can see how this plays itself out with like things like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and all that kind of stuff is like, until you've, you know, walked a mile in my shoes kind of thing, right? Like, and this plays itself out with like men to have nothing to say in the realm of abortion because you're not the one carrying the child, all that kind of stuff, right? So unless you can empathize, unless you can truly understand and identify with the person's suffering, they think that you have nothing to say. Well, think about it this way. I think Joe Rigney is the one who uses this analogy. If there's somebody who's drowning in a river, sympathy would say, I'm going to grab onto this tree branch and I'm going to lean my hand out with maybe another tree branch or another stick or whatever and lean out so that the person can grab hold so I can pull them to shore. Empathy says, I'm going to jump in and drown alongside them, (laughs) right? Like what you lose in empathy is the objective standpoint where you can see that the person is suffering and how to get out of their suffering. So what I mean by that is that when women, and we see this play out in parenting a lot, women are far more prone to identify with the motivations and the feelings of our children. This happens at home all the time, right? So Judah will be acting out. My default reaction is to discipline and to be harsh And Colleen's natural motivation is to understand and to empathize and to want to talk it through. Now, this is one of the reasons that men and women are made for one another. This is a complementary role. Men would be prone to being too harsh. Men would be prone to not understanding external circumstances and all that kind of stuff. But women would be prone to be too soft. And so how that plays out in a marriage is that the, the husband has to sort of shield his children 
from the overzealous mother who just wants to baby and to protect and to coddle. And a mother protects the children from the harshness or the hardness of the father who just wants to come down hard with discipline. So you can see how men and women work together in that. How this plays out, though, is like when you have a church that's 70% women, then how you speak about sin from the pulpit is different. Yeah, right? absolutely. Because men want to be talked to straight. Women want it nuanced. They want you to say it softly, right? Men want to be respected, which means just tell me the way it is. Women want to be loved, which means I still need to feel affection and love from you even in the midst of that. Now, that's not to say that we can't be loving and compassionate in how we say things, but the way it plays out is that generally speaking, pastors are far too conscientious of the emotional reaction to the things that they'll say and the way that they're lead. Yeah, and we'll see this like, the default position is like for a guy, oftentimes just like, I see the problem. Here's the solution. Whereas like sometimes, and we've all done this with our, like yep. I have the solution, but I have to kind of like show you how I got there. So when a man comes in and says like, here's the problem, women, yep. the reaction's generally negative. Again, you you might be listening and say, well, that's not me. I like it blunt and all that. I'm like, okay, there's exceptions, but that's another way it plays out where it's like, the men are trying to fix a problem that maybe doesn't even necessarily is identified yet, right? Yeah. It, it's funny, you were talking about empathy. This is just a tangent, but I used to work at a bank and that was like their big thing. Every time you talk to a client, you have to fill it with empathy. And they would always <laughs> do like these call like quality things on me. And this is like 15 years ago. And I would always score perfectly in everything and then I would get zero in empathy. They were like, you lack empathy. And then they were like, you're a zero on the scale of one to like 11 or whatever for empathy. And it's like, you're a psychopath. <laughs> Apparently I'm a sociopath. I like, who knew? Men aren't wired for that. Right. We understand sympathy because that's, I think that's a Christian virtue. I'm not saying empathy isn't either, but like. Well, there's an episode of Man Rampant where where, uh, Doug Wilson and Joe Rigney call it the sin of empathy. (laughs) Like, like, you know what I mean? And because I do think that to lose perspective to try to help someone who's in their suffering actually denies the objective reality. Like, there'd be Christians who would say, well, Jesus empathized with us because he became one of us. It's like, no, no, no. From his vantage point in heaven, he objectively saw that a perfect human being needed to die and shed his blood for the the sin debt that humanity owed. And he recognized he was the only one who could do that, right? If he abandoned his godly perspective and came down into our suffering with us. Now, he does come down and experience suffering within the world, but he did not lose his perspective. He did not give up his divinity. He was fully God and fully man, which means he did not fully empathize. He was fully man, but he kept his divine perspective because he was both fully God and fully man. To truly empathize would have been Christ actually abandoning his deity to become fully and only humanity. And that's not true. So I think that's the main way I see the feminization happening in the pulpit. So then what, what ends up happening is a couple of things. And we might get some emails about this. So please email us. We don't mind talking about this stuff. But the reality is, is like, because we believe in the distinction between male and female, there are going to be sins that men are more prone to. And there are going to be sins that women are more prone to. Absolutely. There is a reason why Paul warns the wives against being busybodies. It's why the sin not to gossip often is directed towards females. It's, it's directed towards the entirety of the church. But if you look at the entire testimony of Scripture, that becomes a far more feminine kind of sin than does, for example, wrath. 
right? Like the violent streak often is pointed towards men. Like, don't be that way, right? So there are sins that we are each prone to. And I would say that one of the things that women are prone to is the inability to directly confront conflict. And so when you have a feminization of the church, or you have pastors who consciously or subconsciously are trying to cater to a largely female constituency, then what you have is men who are less likely to directly deal with sin, men who are less likely to encourage biblical conflict resolution, like through Matthew 18, men who are less likely to speak clearly and concisely into the culture about what's going on, because the reality is, is that women are far more nuanced, far more, let's talk this through, that sort of thing. And that's where this Rob Bell movement of like, let's just, no, well, not only, well, that, that too, but that's a byproduct of something that happened far earlier. And that's like, can't we just talk about this stuff? Let's not be so dogmatic as to come out and, and draw the lines and, and define this and define that. It was in Velvet Elvis when Rob Bell was just like, so what if the word virgin used in the Greek really meant just a young lady? If Mary wasn't actually a virgin, is your face such a house of cards that you can't at least talk about the possibility of these sorts of things? And it was this feminization of let's just talk this through. Like you said, it's masculine quality. How many men who are listening to us right now have gotten into trouble in your marriage learning when your wife says, you know, let me tell you about the difficulty I had today. And you're like, okay, well, if you do these steps and then you can fix it. Well, I just wanted you to listen. And every husband has to learn, okay, there are times when I need to come in and I need to fix these things for my wife, whether she wants me to or not. And there are times when I do have to just sit there and listen. But there's a massive difference between leading femininely versus learning how to live with our wives as we live with the weaker vessel, which is what Peter says, uh, learn to live with your wives with understanding. I say that to say, I think those are some of the byproducts of a feminized church. And another area, and I'll throw this back to you so you can talk a little bit as well, is I honestly think even just the way we do church appeals more to women than men. I think we have incredibly effeminate worship, very emotionalized, you know, it's about an experience, it's about a feeling, it's about chasing an emotion. I think the entire way we do church is just feminine, and it caters more to women than it does men. I think you're 100% right there. I would say we have feminized worship because we think it's based on feeling, not command. Yeah. Like, I can't remember, I think it's 367 times or whatever in scripture, it commands us to sing praise to the Lord. Right away, like, that doesn't mean we have to be like, weeping as we sing, but it's like the idea is like, it is a command because worship is a duty. What's lost in the Western church, so to speak, is we think we come here because we want to, we should want to, but we come here because we have a duty to come here. God commands us to come here. Right. You know what I mean? Like we come because for him, not us. And even that though, that is you appealing more to men than it is to women. I agree with you completely, and I do think that there is a time and a place for women to be like, I just got to do my duty. But even that reality is like, there'd be a ton of churches and pastors who would push back on you with that. And it's just like, if you're only coming out of duty, then your heart's not engaged, man. Right? Like there is that sort of like, you got to come because you've just fallen in love with yeah. Jesus. Even that language yeah. that we you use, know, you got to fall in yeah, love with I, Jesus. I, I How say, gay does that sound? Yeah, Honestly. I say, I say bullcrap to that. So like, here's, <laughs> here's why I say that. The men in the trenches in World War II... Why did they run out of the trenches to die for their brother beside them? Out of duty. Right. Duty compelled them. Love of their brother, love of their king, love of their country was what sustained them in those trenches. And like, I've never been in a trench. The point is that we've lost that mentality of like, men have a duty and our duty is serve king, love family. I love my wife best by leading her 
dutifully before my king. I'll rein this back into a little bit of like, how does this look? means I have a duty then not to come to church and to worship the heck out of myself. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Not myself, yourself? but like worship a ton yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I'm teaching her what it looks like to worship. I'm responsible for her yeah. because as pastors, we talk about this all the time. We are at some point we are going to stand and give an account for how we shepherd our people. Yep. Every man is going to give an account for how they shepherded their family. That's right. And so Ephesians five tells you that you are responsible for the sanctification of your wife. Let me talk about another way that, and all of this is connected, like you said at the beginning. Another way that I think the church has become feminized is we've individualized faith. Now, don't get me wrong, because women are generally very communal. They're the knitters together of communities and, and families and even societies in terms of like communal relatedness. Yeah, but, we would both go live in a cabin if, the, if you gave us the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, but we have a sort of communal duty that we understand that's sort of different, right? Yeah. So like when I say that is like when we make the, the Christian faith all about individualization, right? Just about you and your journey, right? You and your relationship with Jesus, you and your quiet time, you and this. We've made it so isolated, whereas men are created to take responsibility for others. Because at the end of the day, that's masculinity, right? Masculinity is taking responsibility for others who are around you, right? Masculinity looks like Aeneas taking his father Anchises on his shoulders and his son by the hand and like fighting his way out of Troy, right? That's the like, I will take responsibility for my aging father and for my young son. And, and what does he say when he grabs his son's hand? He's like, I owe you a kingdom. Let's go. Yeah, that's, see, that's amazing. That's, that's um, masculine, right? But 90% of people who listen have no idea what you're talking okay, about. Okay, fair uh, enough. <laughs> I, the, the, one, the analogy I always use is, have you ever seen 300? Yeah. I think there's some scenes in that movie that like I don't recommend, but like I saw it long, long time ago. That doesn't make that sin right, but whatever. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> the premise that I have is there's a massive army of darkness that's yeah. indefeatable numbers-wise, just like, you know, hey, Gideon versus the Midianites. Yeah. But... They followed their king from duty and they fought side by side together. Any one of those guys could have ran away and lived. Right. But they didn't have an individual faith. They were called into right. war for their king. And I realize I use military yeah. analogies for everything. It's the idea of like, we're compelled by courage and duty of each other just as much. Like I owe you just as much as I owe my family, yeah. my courage, my bravery to stand in that line along with my brothers in this church in worship, in service, in whatever is called for me, because we're not saved individually. He doesn't save us and take us home right away. He saves us into a body. Yeah. How many times have we talked about this idea? Like we're not all the same piece of the body. Some are neck, some are ears, whatever, without any piece of that knitted together, including the women for the, and the yeah. children, we don't function right. Which means like the men, maybe we're the shoulders or whatever the analogy is, but we're, we all need to be in because we're saved into this like community covenant family. And so I need every man in this church to stand firm with us or else we're not going to win. Now, even as you talk there, there'd be a lot of guys maybe who listen to this, who are part of our church and who are just like, yes and amen. Like that's, yeah. there'd be a lot of guys though, who are listening, who are maybe not used to a church, maybe like ours, and they're sitting there. And, and what you might notice as you're listening is, is just the language that Chris is using, I think maybe stirs your heart a little bit more than maybe what you're used to. Maybe I'm making a lot of assumptions on the charisma of Chris, but on the, uh, honestly, because I think one of the ways that you win the hearts of the men is by the language that you use. 
When you talk about falling in love with Jesus, I don't care how devoted a follower you are, that sounds gay, right? Like the reality is, is like you might say, oh, just read the Puritans. They're so ooey gooey. No, no, no. The reality is, is that corporately we are the bride of Christ and there is a, a love and affection that we have for our king, absolutely. But when your worship songs could be singing about a boyfriend just as easy as they could about Jesus, there's something wrong with your love songs. Like I think we've made... Christian love too romantic and erotic, quite frankly. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Four Loves, and he distinguishes the four different types of love that Scripture uses. And when Scripture is using the term love, we translate it love, and it's the same way that you could talk about loving your wife, but that's not the kind of love that we're talking about, right? We are talking about dutiful, right? Awe, reverent love, right? It's a respect it's the highest form of love. It goes beyond eroticism. That's one of the yes. kinds of love, eros. It's not eros, right? It's not a, a romantic kind of love. It's a dutiful love. It's an allegiance love, right? Yeah, it's, it's, lo- it's love of a father, not, a, right. lo- not a love of a wife. You that's know what exactly I mean? like, not right. Like, totally like, different. And like, I love my wife different than I love my king, my, my friend. You know what I mean? Like, it's a different one. It's drastically different. You hit on the worship aspect of that you talked about how does effeminacy permeate our church well a lot of the songs are basically substitute out the word yeah. jesus for you know some girl's name and it would still work that's a poor song and a lot of our love songs like or a lot of the worship songs sound basically like they're just like you got to stir up the heart of emotion and, and things like that. and emotions are good jonathan edwards says like our yeah. affections for god should overflow to a point but it can't be emotionally driven if that's right. Like, yeah. and well, so, and, and just to get like, I'll give a, a quick summary. So C.S. Lewis wrote the four loves, but he talks about like, these are all Greek words, but like storge is the sort of it's familiarity. It's sort of a fondness um, that comes from familiarity. This is the kind of love you have for your physical family, you know, the place where you were born, your family home, all that kind of stuff. There's philia, which is sort of the, the friendship bond, right? The bond between brothers, so to speak, that idea. Eros is sort of romantic love, right? And then there's agape, sometimes described as unconditional love, but probably better, you know, a love that exists despite changing circumstances. It's a deep down convictional, it's a, it's a dutiful love, right? And so w- when scripture is talking about love for God, that's the kind of love that it's talking about, which means that we ought not to adopt erotic language, right? Romantic language and infuse our Christian faith with that. We ought to use dutiful language. And so I just think that one of the ways we turn men off of church is we feminize everything, and, and we do that through our worship. I think we do that through our prayers. I think we do that— um, Daddy God? Yeah. Oh, gosh. that just Doesn't that just drive you nuts when somebody can, says something stupid like yeah, that? Yeah, can I just—I just sorry. I, I know this is an t- off topic, yeah, but yeah. I went to the Bills game on Monday. Okay. So, like, I, I don't know when you guys were listening to it. The playoff game against the Steelers I went to, and a gentleman— who I knew a couple decades ago came and his son is like 15 and his son calls him daddy and <laughs> not thinking. Cause yeah. I sometimes don't think before I speak, I was like, dude, you should not call your dad daddy. That's gay. Like, and like <laughs> right away I realized like, I don't know. He might be, I, and I was just, but I just let it go. Cause I was like, I'm not going to, pr-. and it was funny after like, they didn't say very much, but afterwards like, like three or four people were like, Thank you for saying that. That's so funny because like 15 years old called him daddy. That's so, and that's what I mean. Like we need to cultivate masculinity yeah. in our young people. But yeah. as churches, we need to cultivate masculinity in our men. Our society 
says that that's a toxic and a bad thing. And we need to be like, no, no, I celebrate masculinity in our church. So like, how does it look like? Well, we need to do away with this idea of like, this is rampant in churches. It's like, it's everything that's done in a church is done by a woman, except for the preaching. Yeah. You're not a complementarian church. No, you're like not. You're a church that's clinging to the idea that the office of elder pastor is reserved for men, but in every other way you are female driven. Yeah. Right. You're led by the women of, of your church. So it's, it's calling men to responsibility. Absolutely. It's calling men to masculinity. It's, it's calling men to lead. And here's what it doesn't look like. And I'll, I'll give you an example of one of the ways that the church has become feminized. I was talking to a, a guy about this not that long ago, and, and he came to the church from a different church. And he was talking about how every Mother's Day becomes an opportunity for the pastor to talk about the virtues of motherhood and how wonderful we are and how blessed we are for moms and, and how it's a hard calling and, you know, all this kind of stuff and just this sort of like build up the women in the church. And every Father's Day becomes a day to like crap on the men of your church and tell them how bad they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I would just say like, there's a time to call the men and be hard with them. And there's a time to be hard on the women too. But if you can't imagine a Mother's Day sermon at your church and your pastor being hard on the women who are gossips and who are slanders and who are dressing immodestly and who are nagging their husbands and aren't showing respect and you know, aren't educating their kids at home and aren't cultivating and aren't committed to their domestic duties, then you're at a church that's probably effeminized. And so I, I just look at that and there, I say there, there has to be comparable ability to call both men and women to their biblical duties. And if that's not there, then then your church might, may have become effeminized. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about just what, kind of what we've done to intentionally, I guess, go after the hearts of the men. And just so you know, like you might say, wow, you're kind of using gay language there. I mean, I'm using biblical language. In, in uh, 2 Samuel 15, it talks about Absalom. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And and they would get talking. He said, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land and every man with a dispute may come to me. And it says, uh, verse 5, Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men from Israel. One of the reasons I think it's important for us as pastors, as church leaders, to to think through what it looks like to win the hearts of the men is because if the king, right, if David isn't winning the hearts of the men of Israel, then an Absalom is going to come along and steal the hearts of the men of Israel. And that's what happens in 2 Samuel 15. And I look at that and I would say, like, what's going on in our culture right now? So in response to surging feminism, which is just running rampant in the culture, we're, we're Canadians. So we have a, a very effeminate prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who calls himself a feminist and, you know, is always doting and falling over himself to honor women. It's interesting because most of the people who call themselves feminists and who openly dote over women actually treat women the most horribly. And that can be looked at just, you just look at any woman who doesn't fall in line in his cabinet, who gets removed from the caucus. But interestingly, when you look at our culture that's been calling masculinity toxic for all these years, and now young men who have grown up in this feminized culture, what are they doing? Where are they going? They're actually turning to the, is it Ben Tate? 
Ben Tate or Andrew Tate. Tate. Yeah. Andrew Tate and the, the Jordan Petersons, right. And the Joe Rogans, and they're looking for masculine heroes. And the problem is, is that there are Absaloms out there who are going to steal the hearts of the men and they're going to show them a way to masculinity. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for somebody to come along and show them what to do with their masculinity. And because the church isn't doing it, they're letting the Jordan Petersons, the Joe Rogans and the Andrew Tates of the world do it. And they're turning to pick up artists and philosophers and high energy personalities. So there is a real problem in our culture where young Christian men are are, are having their hearts stolen by the Jordan Petersons who are not discipling them in the way of Christ. The pendulum always swings, right? So for many years, we've beat down the masculinity and it, well, the reaction to that is like, we're wired to want that because we are men. The reaction to that means we go far, too far to the other side where they actually become tyrants and they become yeah. like toxic men. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's cause like, we're not saying the there is no such thing. Yeah. Exactly. And whereas like, no, what we're called to is biblical manhood, which is closer to that. Sure. But like not also to the point where like you would have no compassion and no love and, and, and whatnot either. But men will, will find, will go to the person who wins their hearts, so to speak. So we as church leaders and the men in the church have to be the kind of men that are worthy to be followed. And like, we use it a little bit when we talk about like uh, men's ministry at the church is like, I think we stole it from Wilson to be honest with you, but it's the idea of like men's ministry can't just be women's ministry with bacon. That's not, that's not (laughs) enough. It has to, it has to cultivate the kind of skills. And like, I know we did an event on piety and what that, what that reclaiming, what that is. We just did a men's conference about being a valor. What does that look like? And how does it look to lead your family in the church, in your home, in the culture um, and whatnot. And like, the idea is like, we have to reclaim these manly aspects because, you know, we are called to do these things. We can't abdicate our right because somebody else will take it over, whether it's the Jordan Peterson or whether it's Karen at the salad bar, you know what I mean? Somebody's (laughs) going to lead our men. We need to do that. So we need to cultivate that masculinity in our church. And again, I'm going to use another war analogy, but we have to train little warriors. We are men who are called to slay dragons and provide for a family. You have to train them how to do that, right? And we do that by not beating down the God-given abilities that God has given men. And we do it also by celebrating the things that make women, women. Yeah. Is it Shapiro that talks about the idea, like, why would we ever take the greatest gift that a woman has, which is the ability to cultivate humans in their, like, life in their wombs, and take that away from them? No, we should celebrate that thing. Yeah. But we should also celebrate the idea that, like, I can lift more than my wife. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like, just little things. You know what I mean? Like be men. And so one of the ways we do it in our church, like everything we do that involves men has winners and losers because yeah, our men's conference, we're, there we're are, hunters. There are winners. Nobody gets a ribbon. There is a winner and there is a loser. And you're probably at some point not going to win because you know what happens in the business world? You don't always win. Yeah, you don't always win, get the job. Yeah. And like right now we have a whole generation of men who are wake up, play video games for four hours, put on their sweatpants, shower at three o'clock in the afternoon and then expect girls to fall in love with them. And what do they lose? What, what ends up happening is these girls end up marrying the bad boy jerk. Yeah. And it's like, why? Well, what? Well, because you're a 10 year old boy that's 25. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it makes no sense. Whereas, like, no, but we raise men who know how to work, who know how to, who how to lead and are, aren't afraid to do those things. Right. And how that looks, I think, in everybody's church is going to be somewhat different. That was all good. I think, I think a lot of this comes down to, like with everything, it it comes back to Genesis and the creation account. We've talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating, is that the call to take dominion, right, 
was a bivocational calling, right? It's given to the man first and foremost, and then communicated that the reality is, is that he could not take dominion of the world, be fruitful, multiply on his own. And so God gives a woman in order to fulfill that calling. And then when the fall happens and, and man gets cursed, and when man gets cursed, the ground gets cursed, and the ground is going to be hard to cultivate. The earth will rebel against the man's cultivation of it. And when the woman is cursed, she's cursed in childbearing. And that shows us the different ways in which the dominion mandate plays out in the life of the man versus the way that it does in the woman. So the man is meant to expand the borders of Eden, right? So Adam was given, all right, here's Eden, here's my order, here's my my blueprint, here's what godly order and godly rule looks like. Now there's an untamed wilderness, and go make the rest of the untamed wilderness look like the order that I've shown you in Eden. And so Adam's job was to expand the borders of Eden until Eden filled the globe so that the knowledge of the glory of God covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. And obviously we know he failed in that. But the reality is, is that as you take godly dominion, as Adam would have expanded the borders of Eden, there needs to be a keeping of what has been taken, right? What's been conquered that needs to be cultivated. And that's the woman's job, right? And so as Adam and his sons would expand the border of Eden, wives, Eve and their daughters would cultivate life and keep the order within that Adam had first won. So when you look at that, the reason that's important is because then when you think about the mission of your church, how much of your mission is masculine and how much of your mission is feminine, Mm. right? So if the feminine calling is to cultivate life where things have been conquered, that cultivating community, cultivating programs, keeping things running, like how much of that, if if that's 90% of your church— then what are you calling your men to go and conquer, right? What are you calling your men to go and subdue, right? Where are they to have dominion? And so if the mission of your church is not outward focused and the, the mission of your church is not about taking cultural ground and expanding the borders of Christ's kingdom in some way, then you don't have a mission that's going to appeal to a masculine heart. You only have a mission that's going to appeal to a feminine heart. I get that that's theoretical, that's not practical, but when you play that out and you think through what are the big things that your church is about and you fit it into either that masculine paradigm of taking dominion or that feminine paradigm, I think we'll start to see that many churches don't have a masculine calling that they can call men to. Yeah. As a church that if you don't have that, you got to cultivate that. That's right. Men are fixers. So be ruthless about it. Sit down with your elders. Men can do this in their home. Sit down. Because like everything we say about the church also applies to the father. Exactly. And so like your mission in your family, how much of it is feminine, just making your wife happy versus like, let's actually expand the borders of this, of Christ's kingdom in our, in our neighborhood. Like how much of our focus is just internal when men's focus oftentimes is external. It is to the world, the culture around us because we're the ones called to go out and provide the resources and whatnot to continue that internal economy working and whatnot. So be ruthless about it. Sit down and talk about it. One of the things I'm hearing you say is like, that's a manly quality. That's right. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. But like women have a tendency to like, let it kind of go to keep the peace. Yep. And men are not necessarily always good at being peacekeepers. We're peacemakers, which is means we actually bring our peace to bear. And oftentimes the way we make peace is we conquer and we bring you into some, that's that's how the Prince of peace (laughs) is going to bring peace. Like at the end of the day, this is, this is Isaiah nine, right? He's the Prince of peace. 
but the government's upon his shoulders. Of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. What does that mean? That means slowly but surely his rule and his reign will expand. Well, what does rule and reign expanding look like? It looks like conquering, <laughs> right? Like that's, yeah. it's subduing. It looks like a whole bunch of battle. Yeah, you know I mean? that's right. a whole right. bunch of uncomfortable seasons. Yeah. This is where I would say, like to back this all the way up to the beginning, I think that we have a lot of churches and a lot of fathers. So I, could, I would use both people who are, far too comfortable with the status quo of like, you know yeah. what, it's not perfect. It's not, it's not great, but I don't want the fight because you know what? I'm too lazy to have the argument on Saturday night. Yeah. I'm too, you know, happy wife, happy life. It yeah. doesn't matter whatever. We can go too far where we start all of a sudden bickering about our wife's paint choice or whatever. This is not a call to make every decision. This is a call to proper responsibility and delegation. But we also have to be the ones that take responsibility for what has been given to us, just like Christ took responsibility for sins that he didn't even commit on the cross. Well, we have to model that in our families, which means if your family, if your church has a gossip issue, whose fault is it? Your elders. Yeah. It's your men's fault. And and so the only other thing I would say, because I think it should be said, is if you're listening to this and you are a part of a church that's maybe fallen into feminization, one of the things I would say is that if you are not a pastor or an elder, then you might be used by God to address some of the sins and bring these things. Do so respectfully, because also falling into line, right, understanding proper God-given authority is masculine as well, right? You are to be a person who commands respect, but also a man who is able to give respect, a man who is able to be submitted to, and a man who knows when it's proper to submit. So I would just say, you know, one of the things that you need to cultivate is get your own house in order. You ought not to be going to your elders and telling them to get their house in order if your house isn't in order first and foremost. And so the way this plays out is first, make sure that you're leading your family well. It doesn't have to be perfect before you go and bring this other ways, but you have to understand that before you can ever take dominion of the world around you, you have to rule yourself well, right? He who conquers is he who rules himself. Mm -hmm. And remember, there's a couple things. Like as men who are called to take dominion of the world around us, God gives us dangerous things and he calls us not to abandon them, but to master them. You've heard me say this before. So let me just talk to our listeners now. And Chris, you can probably mouth this along with me as I as I say it. But God gives us his word, right? Which is a sword that cuts in both directions. And yet he commands us to wield it with kindness and with gentleness. God gives us a tongue, even though James reminds us that a tongue can set a whole forest on fire. But then God commands us to tame it. God commands us to use alcohol for communion and whenever we gather, even though drunkenness is a sin. And he calls us to master the substance rather than being mastered by it. God gives us testosterone, but he tells us not to be ruled by our lust or our anger, but by self-control and patience and the other fruits of the Spirit. So God calls us to rule ourselves first and foremost. And until you're a man who can rule himself, you're not a man who can bring the rule of Christ to bear on the world around you. So first and foremost, if you want to be a part of the change that we're talking about, and you want to be a man whose whose heart can be won by a, a church that's giving you a masculine mission, make sure first and foremost you're a man who is ruling himself well. And I'm just going to end with, because it's always good for us to remember judgment begins in the house of the Lord, like it, this starts, what's that Michael Jackson song, right? Talking about feminacy. But what's that Michael Jackson song, right? If you want to be make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change, right? 
Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. It's called Man in the Mirror. It's a great song. So, you know, let's end with a quick list of application points that we actually used at our men's conference in terms of here, let's walk out and and commit ourselves to this. So how to be a man who's filled with the Spirit of God and ruled by the Spirit of God. Number one, read a psalm and a proverb every day. The Proverbs are God's wisdom literature, right? You need to be wise. Wisdom is given, scripturally speaking, to kings and to princes in order to rule. Read Proverbs 1, right? It's, it's from a king to the princes who one day need to wield wisdom in order to rule. Wisdom is for kings. Wisdom is for rulers. So read a proverb every day and read a psalm every day because what you find in the Psalms is you find David, who is an emotional man, right? But understands that his emotions are to be subject to the wisdom that he's given to rule with. And so you learn both godly affection and godly wisdom when you read a psalm and a proverb every single day. Number two, pray daily. Pray for yourself, pray with your family, pray for all those for whom you are responsible. Cultivate a prayer life because the only way that you're going to be a man who's ruled by the Spirit of God is if you are connected by the Spirit of God to the Father. Number three, master your vices, right? So with God's word, accountability, prayer, and just gritty battle with your sin, master your vices. Do not be ruled by alcohol. Do not be ruled by pornography. Do not be ruled by lust. Do not be ruled by your temper. Don't be ruled by anything. Number four, seek responsibility. Look for opportunities to bear responsibility for the people around you. Number five, gain mental and physical strength. We are to be men who are mentally strong and physically strong. Scripture says that man's glory is his strength. So cultivate that strength mentally and physically. Number six, don't procrastinate or avoid conflict ever. Don't procrastinate. Don't avoid conflict. Number seven, cultivate relationships with men that you admire for the right reasons. And number eight, just because Chris hates lists that don't end at seven, have a clear written out mission. Know what your life is about. Know what your mission is. Know what your family's life is about. And that's actually how you can make right decisions about where to worship, what churches to go to. Does this church align with my family mission? Even as a young man who might not be married yet, the best thing you can do is to know what your life is about. Because I say to women all the time, young women who come to me and say, oh, you know, I'm dating so-and-so. Do you think he'd make a good husband? I say, well, that depends. What's his mission? What's his life about? Can you see yourself joyfully submitting to his mission and making your life about helping him in his mission? And if the answer is no, I tell that girl not to marry that guy. <laughs> so if you're a man who doesn't have a mission, then just know I'm not going to send anybody to marry you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those are the uh, the eight kind of application points. Maybe we can just end there. And uh, if you have questions, send them to us, rebelpodcastflf at gmail.com. And uh, we would love to talk about this further. Anything you want to say to end off this episode? Yeah, complaints are at Nate at <laughs> Oh, no, that was great. Jokes. All right. Love it. Peace. Yeah.